what I found at the end was peace. I'd done enough that it was all right that, you know, I didn't have to prove myself to me anymore. So actually, I really cherished going and doing something else. It was a lot of fun, actually, to be able to recreate myself. Welcome back to 40 Minute Mentor, the podcast on a mission to make mentorship more accessible by sharing the stories of world-class leaders. Today, I'm joined by Britain's greatest Paralympic athlete, Baroness Tani Gray-Thompson. Tani competed in five Paralympic Games, winning 11 gold, four silver and one bronze medals, as well as breaking 30 world records along the way. In addition to her outstanding sporting career, Tani has gone on to play a prominent role in public life including becoming a crossbench peer in the House of Lords, where she's made significant contributions to debates on welfare reform, assisted dying and sports governance. It's a real honour to have Tani join us on the podcast, and I can't wait for you to hear her inspiring story and brilliant mentorship in today's episode. Tani, welcome to 40 Minute Mentor. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you? Thank you. I'm great. It's uh, lovely to be with you. So thank you very much. Oh, it's a real, real pleasure. Well, we always start 40 Minute Mental episodes with some quickfire questions just to warm you up and so we can get to know you a bit better. So if you could, please finish the following sentences after me. My first ever job was... Working at British Athletics, running a development programme in the mid-90s. And uh, it was a massively interesting experience. I learned a lot because it was basically me running this massive program. Wow, amazing. What a great first gig. Fantastic. And brilliance to me means? Being the best you can be. And the rest of it hopefully looks after itself. But I guess it's having critical friends and being your own critical friend about whether you're really being the best you are, because that's the only thing you can control. That's so true. And you know a thing or two about brilliance. So we'll come on to hearing a bit more about that over the course of the episode. A misconception people have about me is? That I'm really angry all the time. (laughs) Probably when I sit in certain meetings, I probably can be quite forthright. But the way I look at it is that I've usually dialed down the things that I say. So somebody said to me recently, you you, you know, you you just always ask for lots of things. And it was like, no, that's about us all being better. So yeah, I'm I'm not angry. I'm actually an incredibly positive person. It's just um, probably some people just think I ask for too much. Oh, there's nothing wrong with that. You have high standards. And I think that's a really important thing. I think people can be better than they sometimes think they are. And they can deliver to a really high standard. So that's probably why I challenge them to be the best they can be. Yeah, it's so important. And it goes back to the thing you were saying about having a critical friend. And I think sometimes you need somebody to to ask the hard questions or push you that little bit further. I totally agree with that. Can you share something that we wouldn't learn from your CV? That could be a failure, a setback in your career or life that you've learned a lot from. I've had so many failures in sport and in work. So actually, in the whole of my career, from the beginning to the end in sport, I lost more races than I won. But people look at the medals and make sort of big assumptions. So we did loads and loads of road racing where we were competing in open categories. And so I think people like to look at the medals, but don't necessarily look at at the other side of it. But the thing that made me good was not winning all the time. That actually drove me to be better at what I did. 
Oh, what a great answer. Yeah, you don't assume it when you see all the world records and all the medals. You just think that you won all the time. But, but I guess that failure and, and losing is also part of the journey, right? That's really interesting. Thank you so much, Sally. I feel like we've already got a, an insight into your personality and hinted a bit at, at your career. But before we get into some of that, I really want to just start at the beginning. So can you tell us a bit about your upbringing, uh, sort of your childhood and what, what influence your parents and sister had on you? So I was born in Cardiff. I was born with a condition called spina bifida. I could walk a little bit when I was young, um, but basically I'm missing vertebra at the back of my spinal cord, so my spine's not protected. And then as I grew, my spine collapsed and it paralysed me, so I got my own vertebra, suffered my spinal cord. I sort of laugh about it because it was like, it wasn't a big deal. I think lots of people think it's like really tragic, and but I was really lucky. I had really amazing parents who were very positive were educated, looked at the world around and realised how inaccessible it was and actually that I needed to be able to live in this inaccessible world. So they were, you know, very encouraging about me. Uh, My parents, I went to local mainstream school and then when I was 11, the education authority tried to send me to special school where there was basically no education, where I could have done a couple of exams if I was lucky. I remember my parents just saying that's that's not, you know, you're not going there. And then my dad threatened to sue the Secretary of State for Wales over my right to go to a mainstream school. And then people wonder why I'm sort of a bit stroppy. But, um, you know, it was the education I needed. It was an accessible education. I didn't need special ed. So if I'd gone to special school, I would have been able to do CSEs in English Lit, RE, Home Economics, Art, you know. And the school I went to, I did 10 O levels and 4 A levels and an S level, you know. So my parents were able to fight the system. And I think that's where you realise actually how lucky I was because a lot of parents are just knocked down by the system. And my parents just didn't allow that to happen. So, yeah, my parents got, my sister's amazing, um, older than me. She's responsible for my name. I was christened a name she didn't like very much. So she just changed it and, and screamed the house down till my parents changed the name to the one she preferred. And, and it's really funny because people look at us and they probably, I'm probably more outgoing. And I mean, she's she's pretty willful as well, but she's amazing support through my career. And she's like that critical friend as well. So, you know, sure, we were in this really important debate in the House of Lords and it was about a sister dying and, you know, it's really contentious. And she rang me and she just said, like, brush your hair. You looked awful. You know, you look tired. Stick some makeup on. If you're going into like one of the biggest sort of fights of your career, Make sure you look her and you go, oh, okay. so she can say things to me that nobody else can probably say. So I'm, I'm really lucky I have her because she is that. My husband's the same, actually, but they're that kind of critical friend who you know they mean it for the right reasons. I love it. Yeah. It sounds like you've had an incredible family around you and you can already see where the tenacity, the drive to win, the kind of competitive spirit came from, just from the way you've described your parents and your your sister. You can really see the influence coming through there. You mentioned that they fought to get you into a mainstream school, which which clearly opened up you know many more doors than possibly there could have been and you obviously uh, it sounds like you went on to try lots of different sports before you found your love for wheelchair racing at, at the age of 13 so can you share a bit more about how that mainstream school experience was for you which which I'd imagine might have been challenging at, at times and how you discovered that love for for racing so I was was encouraged to be really physically active and it wasn't about Paralympic pathway it's about just being fit and healthy and being able to live in this sort of inaccessible world and I'm just very competitive. 
So, you know, we were lucky that I grew up in Cardiff, so there were lots of opportunities around as well. So, you know, went swimming and horse riding um, through riding with the Disabled Association and, you know, play tennis. And just I was encouraged to just be fit and healthy. But then going to the school I went to, so it was nowhere near where I lived, but at the time there was only one school in South Glamorgan that would take wheelchair users. And on the same site, there was a school for deaf children and there was um, what they called a special school. And that's where I met lots of other disabled children and was able to, you know, start competing against other disabled people. So, um, you know, that school played basketball and, I mean, you name it, everything, we, we tried. But from the minute I did my first wheelchair race, and we just in our day chairs, you know, it wasn't, you know, we didn't have any fancy equipment. I mean, the school had a couple of racing chairs. I remember just doing my first race and thinking, this is it. I love it. This is what I want to do. And it's really interesting. Again, my dad was very keen for me to do multi-sport until I was 16, 17. He was like, you can't concentrate on one sport. And it's kind of come full circle to that again, where, you know, we recognise that it's not great for kids who are trying to be elite just to do one sport and nothing else. So in a lot of ways, he was like really far ahead of his time in terms of his ideas, because he was like, you know, and he always used to say to me, you've got to love your sport because you don't always, you're not always going to like it. And that's really important to remember as well. So, um, yeah, I, I guess I wasn't very good at any other sport either. So that's why, you know, I kind of stuck with wheelchair racing because it was the one I was best at. Yeah. Oh, and what a ride, what a journey it's been ever since you kind of started racing and, and you became part of the British squad at just 17. What was that moment like, you know, to get that sort of international recognition? And, and how did your life change once you kind of heard that news and sort of the time after that? I think again, my parents had this really big influence and in they kept saying, you know, everything's a stepping stone. And it's okay. You know, I don't think we ever had a conversation about how far I wanted to take my career. But dad, again, was just you know, very sensible about everything as a stepping stone to something else. And I got my work ethic from him. I mean, he was a workaholic and he loved his job. And I got, you know, for my parents, I got different things. Sense of, you know, respect for other competitors because you can't do it unless you've got people to compete against. And so, yeah, I mean, when I first heard I joined the squad and then I made my first Paralympics at 19, it was, I mean, I remember opening the letter. I'd just come home from my first year at uni and it was just like, wow, this is amazing. And it's like, okay, right, I need to do this. But then it, I think for me and everything I do is like, what's next? What am I going to do next? And I think that's always been quite important to me. Is, it's not just sit and settle for what you're doing now, but see where else it's going to take you. Yeah, I think that sort of growth mindset we talk a lot about in our world of, of tech and high achieving executives in, in the tech world. It's a lot of the very best people we meet have that great mindset. It's not just about doing the day job well. It's about how can you get better at what you do? And you clearly kind of continually pushed yourself to, to the next great achievement. And you mentioned you were at your first Paralympics in Seoul in 1988, you won bronze, which must have been an amazing achievement. What was the training regime like in the build up to that? And how did you cope with the pressure and the nerves that would have come with such a big competition at such a young age? I mean, I didn't used to get that nervous at that point. I got a lot nervous later on in my career. So I used to throw up before just about every race. But in Seoul, it was just like excitement of being there. It's like, oh my, you know, this is just huge. And everything was like so new and being in a Paralympic village and traveling with the team and 
I remember being so excited. And then after a bit, when you've got 200 teammates on a plane with identical kit bags, that, that gets less exciting pretty quickly, especially when you're at baggage claim trying to find your bags. You know, it's like, but, but that's part of it as well. So I remember being, and I, I sort of finished my first year at Loughborough, and I'd gone there because Seb Coe had gone there, but I know the reasons, you know, I kind of wanted to be at Loughborough, but it was kind of a challenging environment because there were so many elite athletes there. And I'd come from Bridgend's Athletics Club, which was a big club. And we had Steve Brace, who was like, you know, right up there, ranked in the world in marathon running. And But it was quite, um, you know, it was a grassroots to elite club. But you kind of got to know a lot of people there. And suddenly I went to Loughborough and it felt like every kid had a GB vest on, but it helped me find new ways to train. And again, that, you know, my dad was always should have bottled some of his stuff, but you know, he said you can't keep training the same way. You've always got to find new ways. Speak to other coaches, speak to other athletes. You know, just ask questions, always learn. And that's what I got from being at Loughborough. And then I remember coming back from Seoul, and it's like, okay, I've got four years to Barcelona. It's like actually, I haven't got four years. I've got like three and a half because of when selection takes place. And then you start working out how many training sessions I've got to get to the qualification and, and the times that and once you start working back that timeline you realize you don't have you know as much time as you think you do because you know if you're training 12 times a week so I, I like planning my, my life is either really really well planned control freak or it's complete chaos nothing in the middle but um once I sort of started working out that timeline it was like right I've got time to like mess about or take a holiday or I need to just get back into it yeah I think it's really important you know, to have the time to work out the plan, because I've I've known athletes who've not gone to major games because really, you know, didn't listen to what the selection date was, you know, really based stuff, you know, didn't do the qualifying before the selection meeting. So, yeah, for me, you know, I love Excel spreadsheets. So the only way I can achieve the things I want to do is actually just have a list. And I quite like having lists. Fair enough. And I heard that you've you know obviously love the competition but you you found the training period quite boring so can you elaborate a bit on that and what are the qualities that make an ultimate competitor because that's ultimately what you were and went on to become so it's not hard to be motivated when you're competing at an olympics or paralympics so i did five paralympics but we also had demonstration races at four olympics and i competed in sydney the same night that kathy freeman ran you know i mean it's it's not hard to be motivated by that in front of hundred whatever thousand people when you're day in, day out, slogging your guts out on the road or you go into the gym and you're just lifting more of the same, that's really boring, you know. But you've got to remind yourself what the end goal is. And the end goal is that competing on the start line at a big event. So you've, you've just got to crack on with it. And I always did other things when I was training. I was never quite a full-time athlete. because so I think you need other things in your life to think about because if you've got all day to train, it's really easy to, to not. So... I think, yeah, I could make myself do things I didn't like doing. I could make myself work at my weaknesses and I just got on and did it. And I think that's what made me good and held my career together for as long as I did. You know, I did five games, which, you know, I was born in the right year to be able to do that. But, um, and, you know, then the decision to retire, I actually decided to retire at the end of 2004, but then sort of stopped and thought, hang on a minute, you're a long time retired and did another two years to make absolutely sure that I was done. But but I knew in Athens I was never going to do Beijing. And those two years weren't great because I was sick and I was injured and I didn't want to do it. But you kind of still went out and did it. But it was good to know that I didn't have any regrets about my career. There is nothing worse because in sport, you can't go back. 
So when I got to the end, I knew I was done. And I think that was really important for me. Yeah, definitely. You alluded to the fact that it's a grind, obviously having to do the training required to work at that elite level. And I guess what comes with that is huge amounts of sacrifice. I know you organise your wedding around your training schedule and your competing schedule and just lots of things I'd imagine you would have had to sacrifice. So can you share a bit about the some of the, the hardest sacrifices you had to make and at what cost? Uh, and if there are any other particular big challenges that came up that you wanted to share with our listeners? I never saw it as a sacrifice. It was always what I wanted to do. And that was my priority. So I think the wording around that's really important for me because I think as as an individual, as, as soon as you start thinking about a sacrifice, you're making a different set of choices. So my family put up with loads. You know, I trained on Christmas Day. I was away a lot. I missed parties. You know, like I can't do that in training. So when I retired, my sister did say to me, you have no excuse ever to get out of anything ever again that you don't want to do. You know, to be like, oh, I've got a train. So, um, yeah, for me, it was choice, you know. And the point where you started thinking, okay, what am I sacrificing to? That's the point I stopped or started planning. I, I took a couple of years to plan my transition out as well. So it was really at the end of 2004, it's like, right, I'm giving up on the stuff now. And then it's not the same. So, you know, my daughter was born in 2002 and I kind of, didn't want to travel so much and I just wanted to do things differently so I think how you perceive yourself I think is really important and because it wasn't a sacrifice I was really happy to just so you know my wedding was based around my competition schedule my birth of my daughter was you know we had a cutoff date for being pregnant and it was like but that's what you do if you want to do it you do it and it's only when you're on the outside you go okay that's not very balanced but um that was just how it was because I think if you're going to focus, and especially something in sport, which is so time limited, I've done a little bit of coaching, but I'd rather coach an athlete who had less natural talent, but wanted to be the best they could be than someone who was really talented who just didn't really want to do it, you know, because I'd rather look at the commitment in people and then work with those people to be the best they can be. And whether that's getting you to a Paralympics or not, whatever it is, it's, I'm interested in working with people who want to be better. And I think that just comes from my upbringing and everything around me. Totally. I really hope you're enjoying today's episode so far. But before we continue hearing from today's mentor, I wanted to take a minute to give a shout out to our series sponsors, Alchemist. Alchemist is an industry-leading learning and development company using immersive and interactive experiences to help increase employee engagement, levels of happiness and achievement across your teams and overall productivity. Alchemist presents L&D departments with an opportunity to innovate and be bold in their approaches to blended learning. If you love the sound of this as much as we do here at JBM, then head over to thisisalchemist.com forward slash 40 minute mentor to learn more. And now back to our 40 minute mentor. You alluded to your your daughter who I know got to see you win your last two gold medals in Athens, which is just you know, what an incredible thing to say. How has becoming a mother changed you? How did it change you, I guess, as a as an athlete? And, and how has it changed you just as, as a person? Because we, something that we've talked about a lot on this podcast, spoke to Jess about it as well, Jess Ennis Hill, when she came on. And it, it obviously is such a, I mean, it's the most incredible thing in the world to become a parent. But uh, yeah, I'd imagine pretty challenging to balance that with the kind of elite sport. I mean, it wasn't easy. I mean, I started back training when she was a couple of weeks old which had been part of the plan all the way through. So, you know, we'd spent a lot of time working through pregnancy and childbirth and, and that side of it. Yeah, I mean, 
again, it was, I mean, I had the, the squad around were brilliant. We took her on a training camp to Spain when she was a couple of weeks old. The squad were brilliant with her. I mean, she grew up knowing she couldn't crawl across lines on a track. And we used to put her in the long jump pit with a bucket and spade and, and tell her it was the beach. But anyway, she's over that now. She's 20. But um, yeah, it, it, it wasn't easy. But it's like, what do you want to do? You know, and we found a way of working through. Now, she probably knew more about the rules of athletics at six years old than a lot of elite athletes do because she spent a lot of time at tracks. But um, I just think it's it was like an opportunity for her to do things in a different way as well. I mean, to be honest, she thought my racing career was really boring. She wasn't the least bit interested in athletes. So when, when I retired at my final race, a journalist said, oh, can we interview her? at the end of your race and I was like yeah of course you can and my family were there with her and a journalist said to her you know what do you think of mummy don't you think she's amazing and she looked and really seriously said mummy just goes around in circles so she had no concept of I don't even know if she knows what medals I've won I mean it's not something we ever talk about it's just sort of something that I used to do yeah fair enough just mum oh well it's wonderful that she did get to see you albeit maybe didn't fully appreciate it at the time before we come on to kind of the next part of your career I've got to ask you while you're here you know you won so many medals you broke so many records out of all of those what sticks out the most and why probably the people I had around me you know you can't do it on your own you've got coaches you've got training partners you've got all these different people and some of it is I remember being in Switzerland when Karis was six months old and breaking the 400 meter world record. And one of my training partners, Jace, was like, oh my God, that was amazing. That was brilliant. You know, and my husband, who was my coach, hadn't looked at the time. And he just said to me, your first five pushes need work. I remember Jace saying, have you seen the time? And Ian was like, it wasn't about the time. We weren't going for a time today. It was about nailing your first five pushes. And I remember he looked at the clock and he went, all right, yeah, okay, uh, you still need to work on your first five, but you could go even quicker. There's really amazing moments in that because you spend so much time aiming for those things. And then if you're lucky, you get to do it. But for me, it's about other moments as, as well, how you share those moments with people. And there were some really, really good moments that you can't replicate in another environment. There's something about sport, your teammates, you're really close to people. You know, there's a real overlap between personal and professional life you know, which wouldn't work in a business environment. You can't be that, you know, you you shouldn't be sharing a room with someone you work with, you know, but in sport, you get that. And um, there are loads of those moments which are just part of the winning process. Definitely. You alluded earlier to the fact that you had planned for a few years about your eventual retirement. So why did you decide to retire when you did? And what was it like waking up the, the next day after, you know, your last Paralympic win in Athens, knowing that you weren't ever gonna do it again in, in that sort of environment. It must have been a strange sensation for you. It is a weird one because so I, I still had a Commonwealth Games, I had World Championships to aim for. So it wasn't that sort of immediate cold turkey. It was like, okay, I've got time to sort of build other stuff into my life. If in fact she had sort of been thinking about my retirement since I was 21, I was always thinking about, okay, what do I do next? Because you're a long time retired. So it wasn't sort of like, okay, this is it. Suddenly I'm, I'm stopping. There was a process as, as part of that. And I think it's different if you choose to retire than if you're dropped. And how you're dropped is really important that it's done properly and it's it's done well. But because I knew that I was stopping, it was actually it was a massive sense of relief that I felt I didn't have to be that athlete anymore. Because, I mean, it's lovely to be recognised. And people go, oh, you're the athlete. And it was like, OK, I'm not going to have to live up to that anymore. 
but it's really weird. Still, people stop me now. You know, I retired in, you know, very early 2007. Uh, I did Worlds and I did, I was going to stop at Worlds at 2006 and I've, I've been sick through Worlds. And um, there was a big event in Manchester Paralympic World Cup and the guys organising it said, will you just use that as your final race? Because it's quite good PR. And it's like, all right, okay, I'll do that. And I remember just thinking on that day, that's it. You know, I'm just going to be tanny again. I'm not going to have all this being an athlete wrapped around me. So I've been a long time retired, but people still stop. And so before Tokyo last year, I was at a petrol station near my house and this guy stopped me and went, oh, you're the athlete, aren't you? I was like, oh, used to be. And he's like, oh, good luck for Tokyo. And then it's this like awkward, is he saying good luck for my commentating or what? So um, what I found at the end was peace. I'd done enough that it was all right, that, you know, I didn't have to prove myself to me anymore. So actually, I really cherished going and doing something else. It was a lot of fun, actually, to be able to recreate myself. That's amazing. That's that's really great to hear. I mean, we, we've spoken to a lot of athletes on this podcast about transition, including Kate and Helen Richardson-Walsh, uh, Olympians, uh, hockey players who are incredibly candid and, and honest about how hard it was to transition and make that adjustment. So it sounds like you you, you were able to be at peace with it. It was, a, it was a really great thing. But I know a lot of people really struggle with how to move on. So how did you decide on what was next for you? And do you have any advice for anyone listening that, that might be at that point in their career, whether it's sports or it could be the military or something else where, you you know, you are leaving one part of your life behind and you're having to find something else to do? I think it's definitely easier when you've got time. So I knew from being a really young athlete that my career was dependent on what I did, but it's also dependent on selection. So, you know, you can't determine that. So all you can do is do the best job you can. And then you go into the selection meeting. So all the way through my career, I tried different things and I figured out what I liked and didn't like doing. And I was given lots of opportunity to try different things. And I sort of find that over a period of time. So I actually did a politics degree at university and I was always interested in politics not so much party politics, but but interested in political change and affecting change. So that became a bigger part of my life. I mean, I mean, and it was there all the way through competing about what we can do to get more Paralympic athletes known, to get more sponsorship, more media coverage. And then you realise, actually, that's politics. I always laugh when people say sport and politics aren't linked because they are so linked. We have a medal table. That is soft politics. So, yeah, I just kind of refined it over years. And I also left myself with a buffer that when I stopped competing, I had about a year before I had to make any really big decisions. So I wasn't forced into doing things that I maybe wasn't passionate about because I needed the money. I mean, I, I didn't earn much, you know, when I was competing, but I had a buffer and that was really important. So I didn't have to make rash decisions. And then there is just also a bit of luck along the way as well. That happens too. And you, you've got to take those things. But I think it's grasping the opportunity. So trying stuff. And being really honest with yourself, whether you like it or you don't like it. And are you good? Are you good at what you're being asked to do? And if you're not good, you're not going to keep earning money at it. Yeah, it's uh, so, such great advice there. And I think we see that as well, that it, it can be a bit overwhelming, the, the job hunt. And uh, when you're particularly when you're transitioning careers, but there is so much opportunity out there. And I think it starts as, as simple as, as going out there and talking to people that are doing maybe different things that you might be interested in. And, and, and maybe if you can get some work experience or you can do an internship or an externship, or whatever it might be, or just throw yourself into things, as you say, I think people will be amazed at, especially when you've got a background in sport or, or maybe it's the military about how transferable some of those qualities and skills are from your time. So 
yeah, anyone listening to this that might be feeling a bit overwhelmed by that, I think it's brilliant advice you've just given. You became an independent crossbench peer at the House of Lords in 2010, and you took on the title of Baroness, which is, is amazing. What's been your experience of, of that? It's a world that many of us listening will never get to experience. So how have you found that? And, and can you tell us a bit about the impact you've been able to have in this, this new part of your career? Yeah, I mean, so I was always interested in politics and my plan when I retired, I was going to do law conversion and have that as a career. So I've ended up in the same sort of space, just in a different part of it. I had the opportunity to go through the interview process and, you know, took that and got through. Sport and politics are really similar. There's rules. You know, you've got track rules and you've got rules for what you say in the chamber. So you learn the rules and it's about people. It's about networking. It's about relationships and it's about working with people and it's about spending time with people even when you're really busy giving time is is important so I do sort of try and pick and choose what what time I spend you can't just speak to people when you want something from them and that's really hard because everyone's busy but trying to build relationships I think is really important and then it's about just throwing yourself in and not being afraid to try so you know I've, I've lost quite a few votes in the Lords but it's also if you don't try you don't know what you're going to get so some things that I've done this year is that a group of us have got positions of trust legislation on the statute books. So it is now illegal for a sports coach to be in a sexual relationship with a 16 and 17 year old. That was not illegal before, which is crazy. A group of us, again, have got defibs into English schools. The government have just agreed to pay for defibs in all English schools. They were only going to be in new schools, not old ones. But, you know, we've been working on both those things for five, six years. On and off, you know, not all the time. But so... The DFIBs came about in the schools bill, positions the trust came about in the police bill. You've got to look for opportunities and shoehorn it in and give it a go. So bizarrely, both those things went through without any major vote or without any major hassle. And sometimes it'd be nice sometimes to kind of win it with a big vote, you know, a bit like winning a race where it's like, yeah, we won the vote. But actually, it's not about winning the vote. It's about getting the thing across the line. And that's what I've learned from sport as well. It's you win or you don't win, you evaluate it in the same way. And it's about what, what the result is. And I think that's really important. It's not the ego. in. I mean, you have to have a level of ego to put yourself in the chamber every day. But it's not about the ego of winning. It's about getting the right result. And I think people probably look at me and think, because I used to be an athlete, it's all about ego. But it's actually not. Yeah, it's about impact. And, and you're clearly having that. You're very vocal about disability rights, welfare reform, of course, sport. And, and you mentioned some of the great impact that you've had. I'd imagine that there are still lots and lots of areas that you want to see change and lots of work that still needs to be done. So are you able to share some of the things maybe that are on your agenda right now or on the horizon that you'd love to kind of help raise awareness on this podcast? Oh, there's loads of things that I still want to do. I mean, making trains accessible. I mean, trains were meant to be step-free January the 1st, 2020. It's now going to be 2070. I'll be dead before I get a train on my own without, you know, the permission or support of a non-disabled person. You know, buses, planes, education, there's still so much stuff to do in sport. I've got a big long list, you know, and that list varies because, you know, you might work on something really hard for a period of time and then you work on something else and then you come back to it. I think the point I run out of a list of things to do is the point I retire from politics. But at the moment, the list is quite long. Fair enough. Well, good luck with all of those things. You're a real inspiration to, to me, to us all listening, and particularly those with disabilities. And I'm sure that many people have watched your career 
and being inspired to get into sport off the back of seeing your success. And, you know, it's just been wonderful to see on the TV Paralympic athletes alongside able-bodied athletes. And it's just incredible. And you've played a, a massive part in sort of paving the way for that. For anyone that might be listening to this with a disability that maybe hasn't caught the sport bug yet, can you just share some thoughts as to why it's such a good thing to get involved with? Physical activity is really important for everyone. You know, the health of a nation is really important. It's good for your mental health and well-being. It's about having a long and healthy life. You know, since I started being active, I've not been sick, really. I mean, I, you, you get bits and pieces, but what you don't want as an individual is to be hitting frailty in your 40s. You want to be hitting frailty in your late 80s, you know, and it's it's about having a long and doing the things to the best of your ability. So whether you love sport or not, it's really important people are physically active and there's loads of ways that you can do it. There's loads of, you know, quite innovative ways you can be fit and healthy. You know, I always think like in London, you're told to get off a bus stop earlier. Well, where I live in the northeast of England, a bus stop earlier might be three miles down the dual carriageway. But, you know, it's about that personal motivation. So physical activity is, is really important for everybody and especially important for women who tend to have had a, a more negative experience of peeing in schools or, don't think activities for them so there's there's still a lot we've got to do about that as well yeah very very true before we get on to our final wrap-up questions Tani given the kind of broader macro climate there's going to be people listening to this that are struggling at the moment and we know that there's probably going to be some harder times ahead you've overcome lots of adversity in your life and gone on to have lots of success and really come through that so anyone that might be going through that tough time at the moment have you got any just final words of wisdom for them that can help them through those harder times to kind of yeah maybe give them a bit of a lift it's about people again it's finding people around you who you can talk to I think sports sometimes gets those people around you pretty quickly because when you're winning you've got loads of friends when you're not winning you find out who your friends are so you know I've got people in my life that I can call on when I need to and I'm very privileged and lucky to have that so I think it's about finding people that you can talk to about those issues because actually what you find out is Lots of people are having similar issues. You just always say in sport, you look at people who are winning and you think they're really confident. And actually, there's always stuff behind that. So some people are really good at hiding or faking their confidence. And it's about finding people you can talk to about those issues to help you find a way through. Because when you're in the midst or sort of the red mist of trying to solve some really difficult issues, you need someone to help you stand back from it. Such good advice. And I guess that's one of the reasons we created this podcast is that there are some people out there that don't have mentors. We'd had so many people asking us about how to get a mentor and I don't have one and I really feel like I need one. And we hope that this podcast gives a degree of that mentorship, but there are so many people out there that will help. And I think it's one of the things that we've talked a lot about on this podcast from whether it's mental health and, and well-being, but it's really important to talk and particularly for blokes out there, me being one of them that hasn't always been the most open, but especially in these times, it's very easy to go in and yourself and bottle stuff up. But I think we have an obligation, I think, to talk about how important it is to get out there, speak to people, be open, share your concerns. And we're happy to put some links in the show notes for anyone that needs to talk to anybody right now. Thank you for sharing that, Tanya. It's just an amazing advice. And I, I completely agree with you. We're sadly at our wrap up questions. So in one last sentence, uh, Tanya, what does the future hold for you? That's a really hard question. I don't know, more, more politics, more sport trying to make sure some of the young people coming through don't have to fight for the same nonsense I did. That's quite hard to make it something that's definable. But yeah, just trying to make it different. Not easier, because some of the fight is really good for you. But um, just support people through some of those things that, that I went through. 
I love that. Yeah, p- paying it forward is so important. If you could be mentored by one person, dead or alive, who would it be and why? Michelle Obama. I channel Michelle Obama quite a lot. So when she said, when they go low, we go high, there are some times you just think, so I had someone recently was really misogynistic towards me. And it was just like, channel Michelle Obama. Yeah. Oh, it happens loads, you know, as a woman in business, you know, but it was like, yeah. So I spend a lot of time just going, what would Michelle Obama do? <laughs> That's brilliant. That's so good. Yeah. What a woman, what a leader. A voice of reason. I, yeah, that's that's amazing advice. And finally, what is the last piece of advice you want to leave our listeners with? Maybe the best piece of advice you've ever received. It's a saying that came from my grandfather. And he used to say to me, Tanny, aim high, even if you hit a cabbage. No one knows what it means. No one knows where it's come from. He made it up, probably in the pub. And it's about having a golden dream. And it's about doing what you can to, to get to it. And being honest, it means I've made it mean what I want it to mean but it's basically do you know what have some goals and ambition and you know what there's still loads of things I've not done with my life that I'd like to but give it a go and be honest with yourself about how hard you're really working what a fantastic place to leave it it's definitely the first time anyone has said that piece of advice on the podcast (laughs) but the uh, the sentiment and story behind it is brilliant and uh yeah, it's just been a real honour, a real privilege to have you on the podcast, Tani. Thank you so much for inspiring us all and, and for sharing your story with us today. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Tani is a true legend, the greatest Paralympian our country has ever produced, and also a thoroughly lovely person who shared some fantastic insights that I hope you found interesting, thought-provoking and inspiring. Before I let you go, please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe on your favourite podcast platform. Plus, if you think somebody else could benefit from hearing Tani's brilliant mentorship, please make sure you share the episode with a friend. That's everything from us today, but I'm already looking forward to seeing you next week when I'm joined by Graham Hobson, the co-founder of Photobox. Here are a couple of snippets of what you can expect from our conversation. See you next week. And within a week, I'd raised £480,000, opened an AtWest bank account, paid it in, (laughs) and then thought, gosh, you know, like I've got to start this business. And all I've got is these 16 sheets of paper and this bank account with half a million quid in it. So I I went to my co-founder, Mark, and I said, look, we've, we've either got to grow this business much bigger or we've got to stop doing this and go back to our original jobs. So effectively, I was, you know, firing myself as CEO.